Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Pushkin. Just a quick note here. You can listen to all of the music mentioned in this episode on our playlist, which you can find a link to in the show notes. For licensing reasons, each time a song is referenced in this episode, you'll hear this sound effect. All right, enjoy the episode. Few bands represent the eclectic nature of Los Angeles as well as the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Their blend of punk, funk, and rap that they perfected on 1991's Blood Sugar Sex Magic felt like it could have only come from Southern California. That album, by the way, is produced by Broken Record host Rick Rubin, one of his first projects after moving from New York to L.A., the secret to the Red Hot Chili Peppers' funky sound was their dexterous bass player, Flea. A prodigious bassist with massive stage presence whose charm landed him roles in movies like The Big Lebowski and Queen and Slim. His talent was incubated in a Los Angeles that doesn't exist anymore. He writes about it vividly in his book, a memoir of his adolescence called Acid for the Children. Flea discussed the book recently with Malcolm Gladwell in front of an audience at the Palace Theater in Los Angeles. They also talk about Flea's upbringing and how he developed his distinctive style of bass playing. It was our very first live taping of the podcast, and we partnered with KSRW, in my opinion, the best music station in LA, to get it done. So here's Malcolm Gladwell and Flea live in conversation. I notice uh, no one's chanting, yeah, Malcolm. It's uh, pretty much. 
You guys know we're here to talk about books, right? <laughs> I was trying to think, you know, um, this is a great thrill, first of all, for me to be here. I think you're the, I was trying to figure this out backstage, the third most famous person I've ever met. <laughs> it's pretty, I, I mean, it's like really good. Number three. <laughs> Wait, you're saying I'm the third most, most famous person you've ever met? Mm -hmm. I met Obama once. You're not, I mean, you're very famous. Where, you're not that level. One? And number two, I met Oprah once. I think you're three behind Obama and Oprah in my, in my book. So, um, so it's very, uh, very exciting. Um, so we're, I, uh, uh, we're going to discuss your book, which, um, by the way, is really lovely. Thank you. And I, I say that um, in all sincerity, not as a, and I think that's the right word. There's, there's something incredibly heartbreaking and uh, beautiful about it. And that's where I wanted to start. One of, the, one of the many unexpected pleasures of this book is the picture that you paint of Hollywood in the 70s. And I wanted to start there because it's a Hollywood that doesn't, I mean, I may be wrong, it doesn't really exist anymore. Is that right? Yeah, it doesn't exist in the slightest. And I actually had written extensively lamenting the loss of that time and just how the city has changed. And uh, I took it out because I kind of got into grumpy old man territory. Um, but I thought it was kind of some of the best writing that I did. And I sort of would like to release a special little grumpy old man book of the stuff that I took out. <laughs> yeah. Just because it was a love note to a Hollywood of yesteryear that now exists on the tip of a real estate agent's tongue and describing, you know, that this was where Charlie Chaplin kept his woman or something. You know, but Hollywood was um, obviously, you know, the, its whole heritage coming up as the, the beginning of the film industry. But in the 70s, when I got there, it was this place that was so, I mean, in one way, uh, very dangerous and predatory and kind of reveling in the free love of the 60s and that being exploited and turned into money and created a really seedy, um, mean-spirited, dangerous casting couch type of vibe, which was really gross and disgusting. And as a young boy in Hollywood, I was, you know, uh, I dealt with that and also a young boy who was unwatched and a street kid and wild and out till five o'clock in the morning on the Hollywood streets when I was 12 years old, yeah. um, came into many a scary encounter, but also it was alive with a wildness. It was like the wild west, man. I mean, it was, there, there was so much art and so much music and it was um, so untamed and uh, uh, feral in its way and there was so much money. I mean, it, it was, just what? a weird, wild, I mean, glam, punk, you, everything. You, you move here from New York, and you're how old at that point? I was just turned 11 years just old in 1972. 11. And your family, you and your mom and your stepfather and your sister moved first to where? To Koreatown? Is that, am I remembering correctly? No, we lived in the Miracle Mile district. Miracle Mile. Yeah. And then you, and then you moved from there to where exactly? To Hollywood, to Willoughby and Laurel yeah. in Hollywood, yeah. Yeah. So little stucco house. Um, and th there's a, um, I want to get into a little, a little bit more. One of the, the things I remember you talk about when you went to high school, this sort of, what is now a curious fact, which would not have been curious to you at all back then, which is in that era, a public high school was still a place where everyone went. So they were, you had friends whose parents were 
prostitutes and friends whose parents were rich and lived in the Absolutely. Of, and middle school, too. And yeah. when I was in sixth grade, I mean, back then, public school, you just went where you lived. And it had every economic class, every racial class, every ethnicity, everybody together. And I don't know if the standard of education was higher then or not, but it was like private school was, was much more rare then. I didn't hear about kids going, but I, you know, I came across every kind of person from, you know, gang members to rich kids who had lived with a wealth unlike anything I had ever encountered mm -hmm. to, you know, kids who were like trading switchblades and bags of weed in seventh grade, you know. Yeah. It's really the last moment in this city's history where you had that kind of full integration in the public school system. I mean, it's, it's yeah. really odd. I mean, I, I'm, this is a very sort of nerdy sociological point to begin yeah. with. But I wonder, I think ultimately, well, I wonder whether it's connected to the kind of art that was coming out of the schools at that time. Like you, you describe, you had a friend, was it Freddie Gold? Yeah. Who lives in the fancy house. Yeah, he was above, the rich kid. Above Sunset. Yeah. And like, so in the same, in your same friend group, yeah. you were living in under, I guess, your, your family had... Uh, we were all right. I mean, right. we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we actually had it like a pretty nice little spot. I mean, we were just getting by, but, but we did fine. It wasn't like we were... But hungry. someone of your economic background today does not have a school friend named Freddie Gold who lives in no. that kind of... Yeah. No, now if you're rich, you're going to a private school. And it really speaks to where we're at now, like the, the, the divisiveness and the haves and have-nots and this gulf becoming wider and the have-nots being this entire new strata of society that is living on the street and sleeping in their own shit, you know? Mm -hmm. And being in, in, in Los Angeles, it's so prevalent and so intense um, it's difficult to understand. It, 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 you know, back then, when, when I walked around the streets of Hollywood in the 70s, when you saw a homeless person, it was like, oh, there's a bum. There's a guy eating out of a trash can. It was a rare thing. And now it's just a huge segment of society. And yeah. it's, um, you know, part of the divisiveness of the country yeah. that we live in. So describe, tell us the touch points of your, you know, your adolescent world in Hollywood. So you would go, where were you playing basketball? Where uh -huh. were you, uh, when you're, you're 13 or 14 year old self, tell me all yeah. your hangouts. Uh, 13, 14, I was hanging out at Laurel Elementary School. I was hanging out at a Carthay Elementary School. I was hanging out at West Hollywood Park, shooting hoops. I was hanging out like uh, around Hollywood Boulevard and Sunset and stuff because there were just so many little hustles that I had with my friends to get money. We used to, me and my friend JD used to sit up on Hollywood Boulevard with kazoos and trash can lids and do songs, you know, play songs to get money. Um, it was all about the hustle when I was a kid because yeah. from a very young age, it wasn't that I was ever a homeless kid or anything like that, but I was completely unwatched and I was a street kid. I got, you know, from that age, home was just a place to crash. Sometimes I came home, sometimes I didn't. And I just got into everything that I could. But um, there were so many little hangouts, you know, that we found, like um, found older people that would get us high. So we'd go over to their house, you know, um, anywhere. Where, where, one of the things, the first half of the book is about your childhood. And although you talk a lot about your stepfather, that point you just said about how you were unwatched is the striking, you know, to a 2019 ear. Yeah. The striking fact is where in God's name are his parents? Did, yeah. did, but none of your friends seem to have 
Is that fair? I think, well, I think I, I met kids that fit into, you know, my social plan, you yeah. know, um, other kids that had that sort of freedom as well to varying degrees. And for my parents, you know, my stepdad, who was the main father figure around, was in and out of substance abuse and just wasn't paying attention. My mom had her own, you know, relationship problems and problems. They were just too involved in their own, their own pain and their own difficulties and their own, like, uh, struggle to navigate their way through life to watch me, you know. And I know that they loved me, but they just didn't have the skills or the tools to to translate that love into being present and paying attention. Yeah. Um, Did your sister take care of you? Like, where? No, she was wild. <laughs> we were both wild, me and my sister, you know. Um, yeah, no. Because no. I, I... No, no, uh, bless the, your heart. Because the weird, the, the kind of um, fascinating paradox about the book is as you describe your childhood, you're describing chaos and mayhem on one on the one hand and yet at the same time you seem to have had an extraordinary amount of joy as a child yeah i did i you know it's funny like i've always in general had a thing inside of me that yearns so much to you know to connect and to love and to find things and to believe in find things to believe in like when i was a kid i just i loved literature when i discovered music i it changed my life i loved music but the fact that I was unwatched and the fact that I was a wild street kid, even though it made growing up very difficult because I didn't have the structure and I didn't have, you know, my parents like guiding me into growing up and becoming a man, like that, that transition from being a kid. But by that token, I had freedom, you know, and it mm -hmm. got me into a lot of trouble. I was a thief. I was a drug user. I was out of control. Um, I, I had to make huge mistakes to learn. I had to, you know, to, to, and a lot of the book is my search for moral for my moral compass, but as well, it's, I looked for my family in the street. I looked for my family with my friends. And when I connected with my friends, it was, it was profound. And it was where I found, you know, extreme love and connection. The, the, the unhealthy part about it was I looked to my friends to fulfill roles that parents are supposed to fulfill. And, yeah. you know, 14-year-old boys you're getting high with can't do that, you know? Um, so that was difficult for me and, and kind of left me in an, an a raw and vulnerable, uncomfortable position many a time. But at the same time, it's, you know, no accident that someone like me and the friends that I made as a kid ended up starting a band that was able to connect with people. Because any connection that any musician ever has with anyone is in equal proportion to the connection that they can have with one another when they're playing together. Mm -hmm. Or that if they're a solo person, the connection that they have with the, the divine voice of music, you know, it's, it's equal. And oftentimes, like, um, people talk about talent, you know, like, well, you've got talent because you can do this. It's like, I don't know. You know what I mean? And sometimes I think like in music, the best talent is no talent because you might not have a natural feeling for rhythm or harmonic progression or whatever, but because you don't have it, you come at it from your own complete, your own way and you invent something, um, you know, that is, that is really unique. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to come back to that, but I, I just wanted to dwell for a moment on this paradoxical happiness. And there's a passage in your Great. book and I'm going to make you read a little bit of it, but um, you're describing... Uh, November 21st, 1978. So how old are you in 1978? Is, it, uh, is this the, the day that I'm happy? The happy yeah, day? the uh, happy day. Yeah, well, you know, um, I think I'm 
14. Yeah. You're like, it, a, you're like, Ugh. yeah. And I, I, you know, I had described so many sad situations yeah. and I only put things in the book that shaped me. Like I had many a wild tale that probably would have been the, the most exciting stories for people to read and probably would have been the headlines and anything writing anybody about the book, any, in any article about the book. But it was important to me to not write things for entertainment values, but just to be honest to things that actually changed me and opened me up. So amidst all these like traumatic things and melancholy things, I was like, you know what? I had beautiful days too. So I think that's so what we're about to this read. So this is this beautiful day and you describe, you walk a mile to school bouncing your basketball. Um, and, uh, and I love this little thing about, um, the peace sign I drew in my ball popping up between potholes and sloping sidewalks. By the way, there's so much lovely language in this book. But anyway, you get to, I'm going to have you read, I'm just in, in to set up this little part I want you to read. So you get to class and you play, you play basketball before school. Then you sit in social studies class and you deliver an oral report on the composer Hector Berlioz. Berlioz. Symphony Fantastic. You get an A plus. Um, you eat pizza. You, you flirt with a girl that you have a crush on. And then um, just start reading by shot after, after school. Just read that last little bit. Shot more. <laughs> uh, okay. Shot more hoops. Okay. Uh, oh, I shot my hoops. Uh, oh, yeah. Shot more hoops after school. My shot was so on, then ran home. Ah, the house all to myself. Practiced trumpet out of my Arben book, the trumpeter's Bible, the classical melodies resonating through my cranium and echoing around my bedroom, then cooked myself a delicious spaghetti dinner, lay on my bed, satiated and content, reading Richard Bach's Jonathan Livingston Siegel, Watch the Laker game, happy and cozy, before falling into a deep and restorative sleep. So it's like, but it's to my point, this is this description of this perfect day as a 14-year-old, and there's no mention of any adult. Yeah, well, entire, that... <laughs> right? It's, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, right? well, it's true. And it's about, and also it's, but it's about you find, it's about you seeking out and finding things that bring you pleasure like you the book you read the game you watch the the present the music presentation you give the basketball you take with you to school the all you had to sort of create this environment for yourself i thought it was sort of such a striking contrast to the life of a contemporary 14 year old yeah i i guess for me i as a kid and really writing about this book like i learned a lot about myself and I wrote a lot of things I wrote about. I was like, holy shit. Why didn't anybody talk to me about this stuff? Like earlier on when my parents split up, you know, when, when I was a kid, my father worked for the Australian government and he wore, a he wore a suit, had a briefcase, went to work every day. We had dinner at seven o'clock at night. He played golf on the weekends. It was, he ran a very tight ship. It was structured. It was almost like militantly so. And we came from Australia to America because my father got an assignment in New York at the Australian consulate. We were supposed to be in New York for four years, then go back to Australia and continue on in our very normal, uh, proper life. But my mom, my wild-ass mom, in all her heart-following wildness, left my dad, took up with a junkie jazz musician who lived in his parents' basement, 
And, you know, my dad went back without us. He left. And we moved in with this new man who's a drug addict who lived in his parents' basement. And that's when everything just went crazy. And when I look at that in particular, yeah. and I, I'd never really, like, I knew all this stuff that happened, but I had never really, like, looked at it with any real degree of objectivity. And when I wrote about it, 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 it was very emotional for me to look at it. And kind of like, that was one of the times I was like, geez, mom, dad, stepdad, like, you never, ever sat down and talked to us about it. And when I first kind of realized that, I had a tanty for a minute. I was fucking angry. And then, I, you know, as time went by, I realized, like, you know, they did the best they knew. They just didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um... The, the but, amount of... Oh. But, oh, sorry. But just to your question and yeah. your comment, I was really lucky um, as a kid to fall in love with books. And the time that I had with any book, and since I was a little boy, and even when I was the wildest, out-of-control, drug-shooting, freak-out, criminal-ass motherfucker, I read every day, unless I was too high to do it, you know? And I, and even then, I would probably make some, you know, bumbling attempt. But I, I got so much joy and felt so much hope and saw that there was a life, like, even if it was a fantasy life, it was something that was beautiful and and. And the same thing with music. It opened up these doors and these feelings of this limitless possibility that was so beautiful and beyond anything that I understood in a world that often seemed, you know, hypocritical and cruel, that I did have that. I created those things for myself. But you're the first person to mention on that beautiful day that there's no parents around, and I never thought of that. But I realized that outside of, like, with my friends and the, the love that I got from sports like playing basketball in particular, and the thing that I loved about it was the unspoken connection. You know, that sort of telepathic thing you have with people. The same thing playing music. Um, And the same thing kind of with a writer when you're reading their book. You're connecting in this way. And um, the things, the magic of my solitude with those things that gave me hope um, are really, that's me. Like those are the pillars of the best of me. Yeah. Yeah. On the parental theme as well what's interesting is that this book is full of kind of pathology and loss and dysfunction but it's almost all adult so you have i count did i am i counting correctly three pedophiles uh three adult suicides uh i mean it's like you're surrounded by all of these deeply screwed up adult figures who yeah. are making your life incredibly difficult and sad and complicated. And um, the, the simple and beautiful pleasures seem to be the, are the ones that are, are kind of peer pleasures as opposed to, that's the kind of. Right. Well, I guess for me, like simple and beautiful, like is also profound and complex and layered and, and infinite. But in terms of the adults, uh, there are three pedophiles in there. <laughs> there's uh there's the guy you look up later he turns out to be a pedophile oh yeah, yeah there's yeah. the guy who lies down next to you yeah, when you go over guy, his yeah. house and he yep. you, ma- you miraculously escape and then there's another pedophile i was keeping track but it yeah. after a while there's a there's like a yeah. lot of it this is like hollywood yeah. in the 70s scary stuff man but it is i you know when writing about it i there's different things i've had in life like I'm glad I never became a junkie. And when I did shoot up drugs like a moron, I'm glad that I never OD'd and died or, you know, got a deadly disease. 
Um, and I feel like there's like, man, I, there's some protective angel like looking out for me because also growing up with, like I put myself in situations a million times growing up in Hollywood as a little kid where I could have really been hurt. Like this, will you tell that crazy story about the swimming pool that you guys would jump? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I would have thought it was burned. Yeah, that was just the same. Right, you were like, you struggled to find out which of the swimming, crazy swimming pool stories I was referring to. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. This is the well, one. because no, there's two swimming stories. One is like uh, sure late at night when we would go sneak into pools of apartment buildings to swim. I'm talking about the, when we, when we jump jumped off. off the roofs, yeah. Well, that was, you know, Anthony and I, um, as, you know, when we met when we were 15, it was very explosive. Um, we met and it was antagonistic right from the first second. And also literally from the first second, I looked at him and I knew this was a person I'd be hanging out with for the rest of my life. And there was no doubt. I knew and it was intense. And, you know, my mom said to me, my mom's passed away, but. I, me- I remember her telling me, like, kind of towards her later years, she's like, Michael, I remember, you know, when, when you came home and you were 15 and you walked in and you were lit, you were glowing with something, something that I hadn't seen in you before. And you said, Mom, Mom, I finally found someone I can talk to. And that was the day that I met Anthony. And I remember, like, that week it was... Uh, uh, it was raining, and so for PE class, we had to sit up on a, in a you know, we just to sit and talk. You could go down, but you sat in the gym, and we just sat, and we just started talking, and it was just, you know, this nonstop river of communication. Um, had you, was that the first time you ever met him? Yeah. So yeah, it was just a kind of random encountering gym class. It was class. just like, yeah, I had this kid, Tony Sher, in a headlock, and it's so funny, because Tony Sher could, you know, could beat the hell out of me. But, but um, he was my best friend at the time, and uh, I had come out of hanging out with these kids that were real, like, kind of um, bad kids. I mean, relatively bad in terms of, like, every day was just a, what crime can we do yeah. to these kids that were good kids. You know, they did yeah. their homework, we played sports in the street, you know. We might have smoked a little weed here and there, but, you know. But, um, um, and I had this kid in a headlock, and I was giving him a noogie. I don't know if you're familiar with a noogie, but it's when you get someone in a headlock and you grind your knuckles in. And um, Anthony came up and, and he's lay off him, you know, and, and he was, I was scared of him. And he looked unlike, like in, in 1976, 77, in my 10th grade, every kid had, had long hair or a big afro and puka shells and OP shorts and like Led Zepp. And he had a crew cut and, and like, he just looked different. He had tight pants and a, you know, and muscle, he was buff and, you know, and he was intense. He was like, lay off him. And like, Whoa, you know. And I just felt this, you know, this feeling of like uh, that we both were apart from everything and that we would see things in a way that was different. Yeah. And I was right. It's like a, that when you describe the moment you meet Anthony in this book, it's, I mean, it's the, you realize the book is a love story, right? It's this extraordinary romantic, in the, in the most beautiful sense of that word, encounter. And it, it's... And what's amazing to me is like, you say you say you came home that night and you you realize that this was almost your this was your soulmate, from the um, get go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I just knew that we'd be. You know, I don't know what the right word for it is. And one of the things, and perhaps it's hard for me to have 
an objective view on it because our friendship is still this moving, fluctuating, intense thing, um, that it's difficult for me to understand, and I tried to understand it as best I could because it was such a big part of my childhood, such a big part of my growing up. And, um, but as I write in the book, it was, it was difficult, it's difficult for me to understand because it's not like other things where people fulfill something for you in life. You know what I mean? You know, like, um, if it's a romantic relationship, it's an intellectual relationship, it's someone you might share a spiritual path with, it's all these different things. But when he, with he and I, it was like from the beginning, this just this electric motivation. And at the same time, it's sort of like north and south magnets. You know how they have to be together. They have to exist together, but they push against each other too. And I wrote about it. Like, I, you know, I write this piece about these, these uh, what do you call those big horn sheep, like ramming heads mm -hmm. together and, and how they fight. Um, and it might not, it's just because that's what they do. It feels good to smash their heads into each other and they're alive and they're electric and everything is flowing through, through them. And even though like with Anthony and I, we butt heads all the time and we have completely different worldviews and, um, you know, different ways of going about life. But, you know, you know what brothers. It, it reminded me of, there's a very famous marriage researcher called John Gottman who does this exercise with couples. And what he does is he asks them to describe the very first time they met. And his theory is that in the very first encounter between two people are the seeds of their future mm. relationship. And he gave these hilarious examples like, you know, the couple will be in some kind of therapy because the guy is like cold and unresponsive. And he'll say, well, what happened in the first time you met? He goes, well... He was 25 minutes late for the date. He'd forgotten his wallet. He was yeah. distracted by the baseball game going, you know, yeah. it's like, it's all there. Yeah, so yeah. maybe think when you, yeah, you're, you're goofing around and then in comes this kind of like dynamic, yeah. charismatic, yeah. like weird dude who's yeah. not out of step with everything that's going around. Yeah. And instantly there's a kind of, but there's conflict from the beginning. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Get yeah, away That's from a really that. interesting way to look at it. You know, I just got married a few weeks ago, as I was saying, and of course, when you're, thank you, but of course, when you're saying that, I'm just thinking, like, the first time I saw this woman, it was just like, will you marry me? You know what I mean? Just like, and I hadn't oh. said a word. Yeah. But that type of, of, uh, it's fascinating, you know? Yeah. When we come back, Malcolm and Flea continue discussing Flea's relationship with the Red Hot Chili Peppers' Anthony Kiedis. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. 
Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. We're back with Malcolm and Flea live from the Palace Theater in Los Angeles. Talk a little bit more about your relationship at that moment from in that early stage with Anthony. So you have this kind of electric, complex connection. What happens the next day? Um, <laughs> we just start, because this came, you know, the beginning of this conversation was we used to go around to, in Hollywood and we'd, most apartment buildings have swimming pools. So we'd go, any apartment that had a building that had a swimming pool, we'd try to get up on the roof to jump into the pool. And, you know, we'd like ditch our clothes, run in, sometimes, oftentimes naked, get up on top of a pool and just come flying out of the sky. And, you know, land in this pool and sometimes people would be sunning themselves by the pool. And here come these crazy kids, like literally flying out of the sky, screaming and yelling and landing in their pool naked. Ah! You know, people just, oh, oh, and it was just like the thrill, like everything about it, the freaking out of the people, the, the wild flying through the sky, yeah. the running out of there, the being in trouble, the mixing up, this like this like, chaos happening, the thriving on the chaos of the moment. And um, Would you that's done- basically like, like emblematic of everything that we did. Like it was just like every day, like what can we do that will be wild? And... Would you have ever done those things without him? Did you need him to do that? I think I needed him to take it to that level because I found a like-minded person. And it's funny because um, when my mom told me that I found someone I could talk to, Anthony's mom once told me, oh, Anthony told me he found someone who will do anything. So maybe, you know, for both of us, we just kind of fed on each other, you know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Did, um, do you, did, you, did you keep a journal in those years? I never did. No, I, the crazy thing, I would, now that I, when I started writing this book, 
I wrote it pretty much all by hand in a journal. And, you know, just kept filling up journals. And I realized that I've only ever written in journals when I'm absolutely miserable. Like when I'm going through like a lot of like anxiety, panic attacks, deep sadness, deep like just being in horror of my being in my own skin um, when I'll write to try to like uh, understand what I'm going through. Yeah. And but in writing and I just like during the writing process of this book, I learned, when, you know, beyond like just like trying to understand my life and make sense of it. Um, one of the big things I learned is I love writing. I just fucking love it. Like, just the, the way the words sit next to you on the page, like the color of the way different words look next to each other. I learned what alliteration means, you know. Mm. Like, I, I just, every time I sat down and wrote, when I lifted my head up afterwards, I felt connected and engaged to a part of myself that I had never really activated before. Yeah. And it was such a beautiful thing. And, and um, I forgot what I was coming around to. God, it was going to be great. Well, no, I was going to... I was going to say, I, you're, I thought you must have because your memory for all this detail is astonishing. Well, you know, one of the things that made me end the book when the Chili Peppers started is when I started writing about my childhood, I think I don't have that great of a memory. You know, I mean, it comes and goes. But once I started writing about something, I always wrote from a place of feeling. Like it would be one little thing about an event that I remembered but I knew it was something I've been carrying around my whole life. And it was one of those things that guides me without me even knowing that it guides me. It's like something mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm scared. I don't know why, or I'm anxious. And because something triggers something from my childhood, but it's a murky memory. It's just like a color or a shape and a distance. And so I'd start from feeling, like how did I feel? And when I came from that place of like physical sensation, Mm -hmm. And I started writing, it's like, it would become clear. It would like, it, it, the clarity and the, fo and the thing would come into focus. And then, I, not only did the event itself and the narrative of the event come into focus, but then I would start digging underneath, like, what was the thing underneath that made it so? And why is it such an important thing to me? Yeah. And, and that was, uh, I loved that. I loved learning that. But it's not like Keith Richards who had to hire a team of researchers to write his autobiography. What did he do? He had, to, he had he literally had a team of oh, researchers. Right. Wow. Yeah, to see, reconstruct his own the, yeah, memory. That's wild. Yeah. That's interesting. But, I mean, that's like an extreme way to go in a way that I really did not want to go. Because it was important to me. And I think that I got my facts really straight in this book. I'm sure that I missed some things mm -hmm. um, here and there. But I didn't care about that in the slightest. Like, I thought... Even if something happened, and I have it completely wrong in my head, like the story, I've twisted it somehow through some neuroses or whatever, that this is the story that I'm carrying. You know, in all my life, I'm basing my actions and my thoughts and my relationship to the world based on this story that I'm holding. Mm -hmm. And if I learned that I had it wrong, that would be fascinating. You know, that'd be great. And that would be, a, you know, a, could be a watership, a watershed, not watership down, a watershed moment for me in that you know, learning from my mistake, but, but I felt like my, the way that something lives in my heart is of equal validity, or even a dream is of equal validity to any, like, actual, factual thing that happened. Yeah. When you met Anthony, uh, your, your relationship at first was, how much was it about music? Did you, was the music a part of what you were sharing in those early years or? Um, yeah, it was part of it, but 
I mean, from a young age, we started like going out and sneaking into clubs and getting into places and seeing bands played. And I was seeing rock music for the first time because as a kid, I didn't like rock music. I thought it was dumb music. I thought it was music for people who didn't care about music because I grew up in a jazz household and um, jazz being this like really sophisticated, cerebrally, emotionally, spiritually. I just saw rock music as something for kids who care about haircuts and silly magazines and, and stuff. And all of a sudden now it's taking on a different meaning because I meet Anthony and then more profoundly with Halal later, but I start, it, we start sneaking in and I start seeing rock music. And even though I still want to be Dizzy Gillespie when I grow up, I want to be a jazz trumpet player, I start feeling this visceral feeling about things. And I'm a, I'm a kid, I'm starting to come into my sexuality, I'm starting to come in and I'm getting this, I'm out in Hollywood clubs as a little kid and I'm seeing all this crazy behavior and you know nudity and, and people making out and doing weird things in nightclubs where little kids don't belong. I don't get the sense in reading your book that you and Anthony ever paid admission to any club no. in your... No, we, 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 we like to sneak in. I feel like things. challenging you to produce a single ticket from yeah. any <laughs> concert. Yeah, no, we used to have this thing, like it probably still works. If you want to get into a movie theater, walk in backwards. We used to do this thing, just walk in backwards. <laughs> it works all the time. Yeah. There's a... <laughs> do you... <laughs> How would, if Anthony was sitting here yeah. on this side of me, yeah. how would he respond to your account of your meeting? Um, I'm sure it was, you know, very different for him. I know that with Anthony and I, if we, you know, we're together in a room and we both experience the same thing, we'll walk out and we'll both have different stories to tell. So How do, they, how do your stories differ? We just, they just do. They're just, we... We, we're both very uh, intense about who we are, and I don't think I can really put a qualitative sameness on how they differ, because that, it varies from situation to situation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, I feel like I'm talking about all these differences because, uh, you know, he's someone that I love deeply, and we're brothers, and we love each other, and sometimes I worry that in me trying to understand it, that I wrote about in my book, and... Um, it is a love story of my book, um, even though there are many love stories in my book. And my book is a book of, my story is a story of love, of yearning for it and being distracted and going wrong ways and, and all of that. But um, with us, you know, no matter what, love has always been enough. Yeah. The other great love story of the book is about Halel Slovak. Yeah. Um, tell me, tell us about your first encounter with him? Well, I, I, I remember the first time I really noticed him because we were, you know, it had been in school together since seventh grade, but I think, I guess it was the last year of junior high in ninth grade, eighth or ninth, and for the school talent show, he and a few of his friends dressed up like Kiss for the talent show and came out of the talent show and lip synced to Kiss. And they had it down. It wasn't like they just put on a mask. Like they had spent days. They had, you know, the, the makeup, the, the, the high boots. Every outfit had been sewed and studded and the belts. And they really looked like otherworldly KISS guys. And I didn't even know what KISS was. It was, you know, I didn't know about this stuff. 
But I remember seeing him mime in a talent show with, my, with Jack, with Jack Irons, who was you know, the other founding member of the Chili Peppers. And just being amazed, I was like at their commitment and their intensity and their belief in this thing that was like a cartoon to me. It was just like some silly, you know, thing. But I was like, I was like, wow, they really believe in this. Like their commitment, their kicks and their moves and their back to back, like rocking out, you know, wheedle, wheedle, looking at each other, tongues out. Like I was really like impressed in a way that I had never been impressed by even like, you know, real virtuosos in rock music. And, and um, so I noticed him then. And then there was one day, and I, you know, recount this story in my book where Anthony and I were out like, you know, stoned as usual, riding to bumper cars in North Hollywood. And we were always hitchhiking, always trying to get a ride and always had a hustle. And we were walking down the street and we saw him drive by. I guess we were just turned 16, we were old enough to drive. And he had a green Datsun 510 and he was blasting La Via Strangiata by Rush and rocking out. And we saw him and we're like, we know that dude. That's, that's, he's in my social studies class. And we, we ran and chased him down and, you know, because we wanted a ride and he gave us a ride. And right away, just like when Anthony and I connected, we became a threesome. Yeah. And it became every day. But anyway, to my point, you remember that it was a Datsun 510. Yeah, well, he was, you know, yeah, it was a fantastic car. and had a banging stereo in it. Yeah. It's like Rick, Rick Rubin, on a, the episode of Broken Record that just aired, he was interviewing uh, Tanya Tucker. And she's remembering these touring in the early 70s when she was, you know, 14 years old. Yeah. And she, the same thing. She's describing everything and she's like, yeah, and then we had like, you know, two brown Ford LTDs that we were, it's like, yeah. who remembers that particular model yeah. of the, you know, 1971 Ford? Well, when you're a 16 year old boy in Los Angeles, a car is a very significant thing. Yeah, I wouldn't have said a Datsun 510 was very significant. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> well, no, I remember it well because, I mean, he had a car. We were in it constantly. Yeah. Um, so you know. des describe 16-year-old Hillel Slovak. I fell in love with Hillel. He was just an absolutely beautiful boy. He had long, curly hair and... He was an artist. He painted these beautiful paintings and he had an interesting like penmanship, the way he would write. And he would get into drawing things. Like he'd go through a phase of just drawing cows. That he, and he would draw these beautiful cows with these pastoral landscapes. And he, would, he, he was just an artist. I'd never met a kid like this before. He was sensitive and poetic and artistic. And he loved rock music. And he had this red messenger guitar that he slung over his shoulder and it just looked so sexy and cool the way he held it. And, and um, like I said, I had never liked rock music. But when I met Halal, I fell in love with rock music because I fell in love with him. And we'd sit in his room and, um, you know, he just played me all this this great rock music like Hendrix, like I had missed out on Hendrix, you know, it was already 1977 and I didn't know about Hendrix yet. I knew he existed, I knew the songs, but all of a sudden like this sound, this virtuosity, this power, this thing is just filling me up and it's changing my life and his belief in it and his dreams and his like, 
yearning to connect and to this music to like breathe through him as a vehicle for his life was so intense. And we just sit and listen and look at art books and um, it just changed everything for me. I, you know, it was, um, it was really beautiful. And, and when I wrote about Hillel in this book, I didn't, it was important to me. I really just wanted to write about my childhood and to write about how I felt then and to be in my head as how I was when I was a kid because I thought that like the value and the honesty of the story would be not like coming from an adult point of view, but how I was then, like how I was trying to make sense of things. But it was, I couldn't think about it. He died in 1988 and um, his life and death are so intertwined to me at this point. It was difficult for me to write about him without writing about his death. So I did write about it. And um, because his, he's become for me in a way like I have all these beautiful stories and memories in this from him and he's really tragic. It's like, you know, you talk about the book being sad and beautiful at the same time and um, that's how my memories are for him. It's like all these beautiful things and then this tremendous sense of loss and sadness of his death at such a young age. And um, so I wrote about that too, you know, and because um, he exists for me now in my dreams, and in my thoughts, and every day. There's a... The little, throughout the book you have these little moments when you, uh, which work really beautifully, where you, in italics, you kind of give us either flashbacks or you jump into the future or asides, and you have one about his funeral that is one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever read. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about um, it? You know, I wrote that. It's been like, you know, the book was going to come out last year, and I decided to wait a year just because I was going through some stuff. But um, so I don't remember exactly what I wrote. I haven't looked at it in a while. Yeah. Um, I know I wrote two pieces. Yeah, one, two. like, the day that he dies. Oh, that. No, no, then there's another one There's earlier. another part, yeah. Well, you know, Halal died from a heroin overdose. And we were just kids, you know. I mean, we were 26, but I was 26 going on 15. And uh, I, for a long time, I've really kind of... You know, I'm way better at it now, but kind of beat myself up because I didn't know how to be there for him then. You know, I was angry because I was like, you know, we have this thing going, man. We got this band. This is cool. You know, we the funk. We got to like find our rhythm. We got to. And we, he and I, like he had asked me to start playing bass. We had this real profound connection and we were, had this music that we thought was unique and we were propelling it forward. And when he got strung out on heroin, I felt abandoned. I felt left, I felt like he was leaving me, and I got angry at him. And so the way that I expressed my concern for his you know, drug problem was to be angry, and I, I got mad at him, and I, I you know, judged, and I, you know, I, I came from a place of, come on, get it together, we gotta do this. And it causes me great difficulty to now know, like, from my knowing now and having obviously dealt with many a friend with a, and many a person in my life with substance abuse problems, like 
had I been able to be them, that maybe I could have helped a lot. That maybe I could have saved him. Maybe I could have helped him to, you know, capture the beautiful light of who he was and to shed all these, you know, deadly distractions from his life. Um, and to, but I didn't know that then. And and uh, even though I know it's, you know, not my fault, I, a lot of that, I guess that part that I was writing was driven by me coming to terms with that, with my inability to help him. And, um yeah, and I, I, and just the feelings of, of loss, and you know, I often for a long time I had a recurring dream um, where he would come in my dream, and there would be he would just be kind of upset, you know, um, that I wasn't there for him in that way, and um, you know, so I guess it's just me working through that and and yeah. understanding it. Yeah. He, you talk about he was the one who introduced you to the bass. Yeah. So he, he had a band, he had Anthem. That was, yeah. a, that was his band in high school. Anthem with a Y. With a Y. Yeah. And what kind of music did they play? Um, it was rock music yearning to be prog rock. It's the best way I can describe it. It was, you know, it was. It started off like when before I joined the band. It was they were doing a lot of covers, Zeppelin and Queen and stuff like that, and writing their own songs, which were kind of in that like hard rock vein, uh, like mid seventies classic yeah. rock, I guess is what you call it now. Um, but it started to become more progressive and more arty and more crazy, weird chord progressions and quirky, clever kind of things. And yeah, it was like that. Yeah. What, so. Did you like the music of Anthem before you, did you, did you, did you, uh, did, did Anthem come after you became friends with Halal? Yeah, it did. Oh, after. It did. So oh, I, I didn't see. really know about it before. Yeah. But when I first, you know, all my, my judgments about rock music started going away when I went over to uh, Jack's house in his bedroom where they would rehearse. And I'd see them playing, and I had always played music in an academic setting. I played in the LA Junior Philharmonic. I played in whatever. I played in the LACC jazz band when I was in high school. I played, I wanted to be a trumpet player, but it was always a teacher and a conductor and a stand with music on it. And I'm watching them play music just by themselves with no parents and rocking out and rock posters on the walls. And like, you know, girls who were cool at school would come and watch. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, this is a whole nother world. And I started, I started really softening to it and kind of, mm -hmm you know, opening my heart to the idea of it. So he comes to you and he suggests, he asks you whether you'll be the, play the bass for the band? Yeah, and it's a night that I remember so vividly. It was another night where it was raining and we're sitting in his Datsun 510 in front of his mom's house. And uh, it was raining and we were listening to this DJ we really loved named Jim Ladd. And uh, yeah, he was, you know, he was good. And um, it was raining and he, and he was playing, he started playing Riders on the Storm by the Doors. And we were laying back, I'm sure we were stoned, you know, and we're sitting back and it was playing and, and he's like, and he's like, Mike, he goes, uh, you know, he had a bass player named Todd at the time. And he goes, I think, you know, Todd, he doesn't really believe in it. It's like a hobby for him. Um, you know, he doesn't live it. He doesn't breathe it. And, you know, maybe you could learn to play bass, and why don't you learn to play bass and join the band? And 
I just started fucking shivering all over. And in that moment, you know, I felt so like, I don't know if honored is even a word, like seen and loved and valued, like, because I knew it meant everything to him, that a band is a fucking sacred thing, you know, and like, when he, <laughs> when he asked me to join, I just, it was the most loving thing that anyone had ever said to me in my life. <laughs> it was so great. And, um, you know, sorry, I got, I got emotional. But, but um, you know, I was just fucking stoked. And the next day I ran out and got a bass. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, got a bass. And right away just started whacking away at it. And two weeks later I was on stage at Gazzari's in Hollywood playing a gig. <laughs> and that you know, became what I did for the rest of my life. <laughs> Can you, um... When we come back, Flea picks up his bass and walks us through the evolution of his playing style. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo. 
two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. We're back with more of Malcolm's interview with Flea. You have your base sitting there very tantalizingly. Um, I'd love for you to Give us a little guided tour in your, in the kind of evolution of your, you play the bass in a very distinctive way. I would love for you to explain to us how did that come about? Walk us through the steps. Um, Okay. Well, playing trumpet, like I said, had been a very academic, like institutional way of learning. And as soon as I started playing bass, like all of that went out the window. And not that I wasn't that harmonically sophisticated or anything, but like when the first day I got my bass, I had one lesson from Hillel, because I started going like this. And he goes, he goes, it's good when you walk with your fingers, just like you're walking. So I started going. And I remember the first thing I ever learned to play was a song that Hillel had written called One Way Woman. Hey there, baby. Have you heard the news? He used to sing it. And, um, we keep going. <laughs> I can't remember. And, and like, I am a fucking awful singer. Yeah. And Halal was worse than me. I'll chime and in. he sang it. <laughs> but it went, it went. It went like that. And I can't remember. And I'm making, a, you know, I don't mean to make a mockery of it. Because believe me, when I got on stage at the Gazaris, I played that thing with every fucking atom that I had invested in it. <laughs> in it um and you know and so i just started playing but then the way that i really learned to play and then i, I started figuring out like remember one of the first things i learned cashmere by led zeppelin you know i just started playing and, and learning things but the way that i really learned was we would get in a room and we would just start improvising and and you know no plan no no song we just we just improvised, and I just started making up rhythms, you know. And even at first, they'd be very simple because I came. From, I didn't know rock music at all, and I came from wanting to be a jazz trumpet player. I didn't approach the bass in the normal way. So, like most rock bass lines, would you know? And I didn't know that at all. So right away, I was like, you know what I mean? I just was nutty. You know, uh-huh. and, and I just started, you know, growing as a bass player. And it wasn't really, you know, and I just kept doing that. And like following, as my friend Ian Mackay says, follow the thread. So say you, you, you write something you like, you're like, like just that, right? And then he's like, okay, so that's good. You know, and just following the thread and finding the next thing. And I just kept doing it and doing it and developing my style. I didn't really have like the normal ramp up because I just right into playing gigs and jamming and stuff. There's a, a part, you know, I was listening to rock music and 
you know, I didn't really even learn other people's songs, which is kind of a weird way too, because most people learn songs, and I still don't do that that much. Um, but I, I, when I was in, I just started playing, and it was 11th grade, and then I, I saw a kid named Ray. Like there was Anthem, was a band in high school, and there was another band that was a funk band called Star, and they had a bass player named Ray. And I'd only see bass played like this with the fingers. And Ray was going like this with his thumb. And I was like, what the fuck? Ray, you know, and he was like bouncing, his, bouncing and popping and plucking and thumping. And, and uh, I watched him. And he was like, yeah, man, you know, you hit it with your thumb, slide it down. And that, you know, blew my mind when I saw Ray do that. And then the kind of a big, so I started doing that. I started, you know, playing funk and, and slapping. And then but, then, but then what happened, like a big change for me, was at a certain point I discovered punk rock. And when I started liking rock music, I just liked, I liked the virtuoso players. I liked, you know, I liked Hendrix, and I liked prog rock, like Alan Holdsworth and Bill Bruford, and Yes, and these guys that were very proficient, technically accomplished virtuoso players. And I saw, like, I'd seen punk rock shows, and it was wild, and I appreciated, like, the intensity of it, but I was like, they don't know how to play. And I didn't like it. And then um, I had a, one night, I took acid, and by the way, my book's called Acid for the Children, but I do not recommend children taking acid. That's not the point of it. But and we could talk about that if we want. But, but I saw this band called Fear playing. And they're playing this really fast, hardcore punk rock. And I was just, you know, granted I was on LSD, but I was entranced. You know, I was absolutely entranced. And, and I, just the, the movement of it, they, they actually you know, were actually really good players within the context of this really fast, relentless, hardcore punk rock. And when I saw them play, I, it, it, it's like opened a door, you know, I might have been on acid, so the door was there to be opened, but the thing was there for real, you know? And, you know, so I'm blown away by this band. Afterwards, I'm telling everyone about it. Oh my God, this band Fear, they're so crazy, and the singer's so charismatic, and the music, and the, the crazy time signatures. And then three days later, I see an ad in the paper, Fear fires bass player, looking for a new bass player. And um, I call, and I, you know, I call up, I go down on audition, and I was like, you know, I'm the wildest man that ever lived. And I love this music, like there's no way they're not gonna hire me. And they did hire me. And um, so then I started playing in, in Fear, and the music was really fast. Like, like it was punk rock, very simple, but fast. And also like, here's a Fear song, it's called Give Me Some Action, it goes. Anyways, but when I coupled, when I, thanks, when I, when I coupled that feeling of punk rock, because mm. when I fell in love with punk rock, I had a real awakening. The, the real, like, even though I played in fear and I loved being in fear and it was exciting and thrilling, the thing that got me was the germs. I heard, um, thanks, I, 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 you know, I heard the germs once, I was like, what's that? And person I was with was like, oh, the germs, they didn't know how to play, they're, you know, yeah, they're obnoxious, the singer was a creep, you know, that's what someone told me at the time, and I was like, yeah, but, and I was getting, in my head, they were saying it, and it was someone I admired, but in my, in my head, I was like, that, that, I gotta hear that, and I remember the next day, I went out and got their record, GI, and when I heard it, I remember, like, and it's another thing, I write about it in my book, it's a very vivid memory, because it changed a part of me 
um, forever, which was that when I heard it, it had this magical, spiritual, intangible quality to it um, that just affected me, that made me tingle all over, that made me get lost in the ether. And here's this like really violent, like relentlessly intense music with no melody and the singer snarling and yelling. There's, you know, it doesn't, it's not like he's even singing. And, but it just like, I just like I was on, it just took me away. It took me into the ether. And uh, I was so moved by it that it changed the way I looked at music forever. It made me feel that it didn't matter if you knew how to play fast, if you were a virtuoso. And even though I still, you know, love the, the discipline and all the work the ethic that it takes for someone to become a virtuoso, I realized that the motivation and the integrity and the intensity of the message that someone wants to, um, to communicate, their vehicle might be something really remedial. And, and the, the love of the connection of the people in the band and all these, these, these things that make music sacred can exist as vibrantly in the most simple thing as they can in like the greatest John Coltrane solo. So the Germans did that for me. And then so anyways, when I really fell in love with punk rock, then I took the energy of, you know, punk rock and funk and I started putting them together, you know, and I started developing a style of my own, even though I already, I did have my own voice as a bass player, but I kind of started playing these, these bass lines, these like fast funk bass lines with punk rock energy from those two different styles and, you know, created this new kind of hybrid of a sound. And also, you know, influenced by a lot of the great um, kind of, post-punk pans, I guess you call it, like uh, from New York. I really loved Defunct with Joe Bowie and James Chance, the contortions, um, this kind of that no New York sound and stuff, as well as just the reckless freedom of the great free jazzers when they played punk, like the, um, uh, you know, lots of, the, lots of people. Um, mm -hmm. when, when you say that the, the moment you, you sort of fuse those two traditions mm. in your own playing, when is that happening? Is that early Chili Peppers or is that yeah, pre-Chili Peppers? just before the Chili Peppers, you know? Yeah. Just before um, I started, yeah, maybe six months before or so. And at that time, things were moving so quickly, you know? Um, I guess it's like maybe that happens when you get older, time goes faster, but events, uh, significant events, I think, maybe that's like an archetypal thing or a developmental thing with people, I don't know, but happen at, at that age. And if you're willing to have the diligence to, to deal with them and, and, let, and integrate them into your life, they can be really profound. What, what were your musical peers, how were they responding to that, to that style of playing? Were you getting... Uh, I was doing it by myself at first because I was playing, you know, I left Anthem, which had become What Is This? I joined Fear. And, and fear was, you know, punk rock. They didn't want to hear about me slapping and playing funk, you know. Um, but when I got together and started playing with Hillel and Jack again and Anthony, and we started with Chili Peppers, it just all of a sudden just happened. Like I had this stuff. I had this way of playing. And all of a sudden I was like this. And, you know, they just, we, everyone knew what to do. You know, as well as everyone else was, it wasn't just me. Everyone was finding their place. And sometimes things, it's just like a zeitgeist, you know. It's like something's in the air and you express it. I, I you know, I, I, it's funny. The more I learn about music and when I went and studied music, 
even like, you know, because I never studied music really academically. I mean, like kid public school stuff. But when I was 46, I went to college for a year to USC and studied music academically, academically which I'd never done. And it became so apparent to me that, so you just start getting into, say, Bach, which is, you know, very, like, mathematically complex. But it's all these things are just there. It's like, you know, it's things that resonate at various speeds, and, and you figure them out how to put them together to make these mathematical equations that form this sound, and you, it just becomes like breathing because you're so good at it. It's just all there. You know what I mean? And it's like if our antennae are, our, our antenna are tuned, we, we pick it up. And I just think at that time, it was there. Did um, talk a little bit about, you mentioned the, the beginnings of the Chili Peppers. Talk a little bit about um, Anthony's decision. So he goes from someone who's an avid fan of music to deciding that he wants to make music. Yeah. Oh, well, you asked earlier if we had, um, if our relationship was musical from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And we appreciated music together for sure. You know, we would listen to music all the time and he would play stuff like him in his, in his house where he lived with his dad and they would play me music that I'd never heard. Like Blondie's first album I remember hearing and um, just, you know, stuff that I didn't know about because we didn't listen to rock music in my house. And, um, but, but he, Anthony was an actor. You know, he was, had done film parts and he wanted to be an actor and he was, you know, gearing himself towards a life as an actor. And, um, you know, but we were just so wild and crazy and distracted and running around on the street that neither of us, like, e even though we loved to do the things that we did, we were just all over the place. You know, it wasn't like we had, we, we weren't that disciplined. But one night he went to go see Grandmaster Flash in The Furious Five. And he came home the next day. We were like all crashing in this apartment up on Wilton and Franklin. And he came in and, and he was just lit up. He was like, man, I saw these guys who were rapping. You know, it was like we were just learning about hip hop, you know, and he saw Grandma's Rushford. He was like, it was incredible. You know, these stories and these narratives and it's poetry, but it's like it's rhythm and it's singing, but it's not. It's rapping and it's fucking amazing. And I'm going to do it, you know. And he just sat right down and wrote this, started writing this rap. And um, at the same time, a friend of ours, who I write about in a book, my dear friend Gary Allen, um, was doing a show. And he said, why don't you guys get something together and do an opening act for me? And um, Anthony wrote this rap, and I had this groove, this song, and we made this, our first Chili Pepper song called Out in L.A., and we got together and we played. And that was it. Yeah. 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 Did you end the book on uh, right at the moment at the birth of the Chili Peppers. Does this mean you're writing part two? Um, at the time, I was absolutely convinced that I was going to do a part two, and now I'm kind of on the fence about it. I don't mm -hmm. know. I definitely want to write, um, and I have like a bunch of different things in my head, and I'm writing stuff, um, and whether I want to release another memoir, at least next, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to... Um, uh, end with, uh, and sadly, I think we do have to, um, with one of my favorite, I, you know, the book begins with this incredibly powerful um, and evocative picture of um, the Hollywood of your preteen years of the early 70s. And then it ends with this extraordinary, vivid depiction of the Hollywood sort of musical scene of your early 20s mm. and there's one 
there's one little chapter, and I'm going to make you read again. Okay. Um, where you're, it's when you have a part-time job with the veterinarian, mm. and you liberate a whole series of pills. Oh, yeah, yeah. From, you'll remember this, from yeah, the vet's yeah. office. I was going to actually try to, because when I did the pill installation, because I had stole pills from the veterinarian ho veterinary hospital I worked at, and um, installed them as an art piece. And I thought, you know, I'd beat Damien Hirst to the punch. But, yeah. yeah. So imagine, what, hundreds of these pills? Uh, yeah, hundreds, for sure. <laughs> yeah. For every variety of pill. So all along the kind of... Yeah, there was like a mantle that went along the house that we were renting. So yeah. you have... Santa Monica and Formosa. I want you to read these last two chapters right. here, that page. <clears throat> The pills were, uh, we had a party, by the way. And, um, <laughs> if that wasn't obvious, yeah. Yeah. And I put all these pills up. The pills were for various animal maladies like diarrhea, raw spots from excessive itching, and also included antibiotics and tranquilizers. The crowd of Hollywood high and low lives ate the pills and puked and pooped for days afterward. Emerging through the craziness of the party crowd came Snickers, a dude from a local punk band called The Stains. He commandeered the stereo, took off the arty music we were playing, and put on an ACDC record. When I tried to put on some Ornette Coleman, he jumped up in front of the record player and whipped out a Bowie knife. A 40 ounce of Schlitz in one hand and the knife in the other, he stood guard over his ACDC for the length of the album, stoically hanging his head, greasy hair hanging down over his wildling bloodshot eyes. I wasn't going to fuck with him. True rocker. We later became friends. <laughs> Snickers was a wild dude. That I think... <laughs> and the Stains were a great band. <laughs> that uh, that uh, story, I think, in some ways sums up the the wild and magical and wonderful spirit of this extraordinary book that you've mm. written. And I would, um, I think I speak for everyone in this audience when I say that, please, please write part two. Uh, I mean, we, absolutely. Thank you, Malcolm. Um, ladies and gentlemen, join me in thanking, mm. please. Thank you. Good. couldn't be more thrilled to have done our first live broken record with Flea. Make sure to go pick up his book, Acid for the Children. You can check out a playlist we put together featuring songs from some of Flea's favorite albums. It's at brokenrecordpodcast.com. You can also sign up for a behind-the-scenes newsletter while you're there. Broken Record is produced by Pushkin Industries with help from Jason Gambrell and Mia Lobel. Our theme music is by the great Kenny Beats. Stay tuned for next week's episodes. You heard me right. We're dropping two. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks again for listening. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. 
Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 